It's Thursday, January 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Scammers are always looking for new ways to cheat you out of your money. And one scam in particular that is ramping up are gift card scams. People are posing as grandchildren, government officials, and tech support agents, and ask you for payments through store gift cards. Gift cards are the choice of scammers because purchases can be made immediately and anonymously. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us with the story of how one family learned the hard way. Next, cannabis restaurants are coming to California, and if all goes well, this could be a model you start seeing in other states. The now-open Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe is pairing a farm-to-table meal with flower service, so you can pair your meal with that perfect weed strain. Even though the state has legalized recreational marijuana, running a cannabis restaurant is nothing like running a typical restaurant. And there are a lot more regulations to follow. Mara Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for some of the creative ways this will all work. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It was too much money. Too much money for me to hand over to a stranger like that. I could have paid my taxes. I could have paid all these things were coming up. But to have lost that, that amount of money just, just for the sake of losing it. Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. It's time to beware of the gift card scam as the holidays are getting closer. This is one of the scams that experts fear could be on the rise. But we are also getting increasing reports of this type of action. Basically, fraudsters are calling people, posing as grandchildren, government officials, tech support agents, and they're asking for payments in the form of store gift cards. That should already be a red flag, but there are people that are taken by this. Julie, tell us a little bit about this and then tell us a story that you feature in the article about a grandma who was scammed by this. This is a growing issue. The number of people who are reporting that they've lost money to scams and that they've paid with gift cards is really on the rise. And it's targeting everybody, not just elderly people. I talked to someone who works at a cybersecurity firm who received an email from what looked to be his boss. He saw it on his mobile phone. The person said that they needed him to buy $3,000 worth of Amazon gift cards for clients. It looked like a reasonable request, but this man had gone through training at his firm that if you ever get an email like that or a phone call, that it's best to follow up with a phone call to the actual person. So he called his boss. His boss said, no, that did not come from me. It was a spoofed email. That's kind of where it can get really tricky because a lot of times these scammers will spoof email addresses. So you receive a message that appears to have come from someone you know. But if you look at the actual domain name of the email, you can see it's not their actual email address. Right. And sometimes they have just like one letter or a number changed so that it almost looks exactly like the real email. And that's how they get you. That's how they trick you. It can be very, very close. So the best solution always is to call the person and try to verify. What happened with this particular woman that I profiled in my story, 78-year-old woman, she received a phone call from a young man who she said sounded like her grandson. He said he was her grandson and that he had gotten arrested and he needed $4,000 to bail out of jail. And he needed it in the form of gift cards. So she went to her bank, withdrew $4,000 went straight to Walmart. And at first she was so flustered when she was at Walmart that she bought the wrong kind of card. She actually bought prepaid MasterCards. And that's not what the scammer wanted. 
He yeah. wanted gift cards that have a code on the back that you can scratch off. So she went back to her bank, went back to Walmart, bought Walmart gift cards. And this continued to go on a couple of times. And that's a key distinction, too. While the scammer is obviously setting this up saying, hey, grandma, bail me out. I need $4,000 in gift cards. The other half of it was that he was constantly calling back to say, hey, did you get the cards yet? Do we have the cards? And when she said, I have these MasterCard ones, he even told her, no, those don't work. I need one specifically with the code on the back, because then that way he can go online and simply use that code without ever having to have that physical card. I think this woman in particular, she ended up going back to her bank and pulling out $12,000 to do this. She did the MasterCard. She'd got 4,000 in Walmart gift cards after, and then another 4,000 in Walmart gift cards before her family finally caught on. And the reason why these scammers like gift cards is because it's so quick. Once they have that code, they can turn around and they can make purchases online. They don't need the physical card. They just need that code on the back. And so before the person even realizes they've been scammed, you know, they could go within minutes or hours if they, you know, inform a family member who's like, oh, you've, you've been scammed. That money can already have been spent. And in this particular case, people that were trying to help the family out after they found out what was going on, they provided them with tracking numbers and addresses where items had been shipped. They were being shipped to like warehouses in Portland, Oregon and Ontario, California, and they purchased a laptop, a desktop computer, baby formula, which is weird, and a camera, all these things that they can get instantly. And while they were checking some of this stuff, there was a balance on one of the cards. By the time they got back around to it, that balance had been gone. The daughter of this woman, she was on the phone with someone from Walmart who was trying to credit money back to these gift cards. Now, the scammers, of course, still had the code numbers, but someone at Walmart who was trying to be helpful was trying to give the money back onto the cards. Her mother was at an actual Walmart store talking to the customer service desk. She wanted to try to cash out that $650 that was on one of the cards and was told that you know, she couldn't get cash for it. So she stepped away, called her daughter. Her daughter advised her, just have that balance transferred to another card. By the time the mother got back to her customer service representative, that $650 had been spent again. Wow. And that's how fast they're working. According to the Federal Trade Commission, 33% of people who reported losing money to a scam throughout the third quarter of this year said it was on a gift card or reloadable card type payment. And so I think the total money that was lost was about $74 million through September. Obviously, sometimes these stories sound so obvious and, you know, the casual listener be like, I'd never fall for some of that. But these stories are examples of that actually happening. So tell us a few tips that we can take away to try to outsmart the scammers. The key thing is if someone, especially if someone calls you and is asking for payment in any form, whether it's gift cards or a wire transfer or checks or whatever, just hang up. If the person is real and they really need your help, you're going to find out about it in some other way. Just hang up because where they get people is the person is nervous and they're making rash decisions and they're not thinking it through. So the scammer wants to keep that person on the phone and get what they need. So I think once a person is able to just hang up and think through it, they probably will come to the conclusion that it's not a good idea to do this. So hang up. If someone is claiming to be a relative, a grandson, just again, hang up, call your actual grandson back. Now, the woman in this case did call her grandson and he didn't answer his cell phone. So that was convincing to her that he actually might have been in jail and didn't have access to his cell phone. But even in that situation, if you can't reach that person right away, call another trusted relative, call your sister, your brother, whatever. Try to verify whether this story that's being told to you is even true. And what these scammers will do is they will beg you, don't tell my mom. They try to get you in your confidence because they know if you try to verify it, it's going to be discovered to be false. Right. 
So that's kind of a red flag right there. Julie Jargon, family and tech correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My name is Andrea Drummer, and I'm a cannabis chef. I take the cannabis and I infuse butters, tinctures, and oils at proper dosage, and then I use that to cook with. So you get elevated, or one would say high. Joining us now is Maura Judkis, reporter for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Maura. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about cannabis restaurants. They're coming to California. There's going to be bud tenders. There's going to be flower service. You can get all sorts of stuff. The hope is that you would also be able to get uh, marijuana-infused food, although that seems like it might be a little further off. But, uh, you know, California has been in the forefront of uh, marijuana legalization and recreational use, and they're hoping to make this restaurant, this cafe thing, kind of the first of its kind in hopes that these things might spread around all over the place. Tell us a little bit about uh, your story and uh, the soon-to-open Lowell Farms Cannabis cannabis Cafe. So this is pretty groundbreaking in terms of what people are doing with cannabis. There have been a number of pop-up restaurants. There are some consumption lounges that are attached to dispensaries. But um, when Lowell Farms opens its cafe in West Hollywood, it will be the first full-service, open-to-the-public restaurant that serves a full meal plus cannabis. And they're going to be opening in early September. And, you know, they've had to jump through a lot of logistical hurdles to get this off the ground. It's called Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe. The main partner in this is Lowell Herb Company, which has a bunch of celebrity backers, uh, Miley Cyrus, Chris Rock, Mark Ronson, Sarah Silverman, a lot of big names and a, a lot of money behind these ventures. I mean, one of the interesting things was that because of all the licensing and all, all the things that you need, it's going to be about $3 million for this restaurant to open. Yeah, it takes a lot of money to open one of these because there's a lot of lobbying. There were the license proposals, which were quite expensive. And there's a lot more expenses than running a typical restaurant. I think that's one thing people don't understand about these is that you have to have extra staff. You have to have 24-hour security. If it's a smoking lounge, you need these like very expensive vents to suck up the smoke and purify the air. There's just a lot that goes into it. And so that's why a big company like Lowell is well-positioned to do it. But there are also a number of of small entrepreneurs um, and smaller businesses that are working towards operating one of these restaurants as well. Tell us, kind of describe how this cannabis cafe slash restaurant, everything, how it's going to work. You're going to be able to sit down, order a dish, and then somebody will bring you a joint that pairs with that dish. Yes, exactly. Basically, um, there will be two outdoor areas and one indoor area in the Lowell Cafe. Um, there's one area for people who aren't going to consume cannabis at all. Um, if someone just wants to come in for a coffee or a snack. Um, and then there are two areas where you'll be able to smoke or vape. There will also be a limited number of edibles that they'll have. And actually, there will be two different sets of waiters um, or servers. You'll have one person who will be serving you your food and then another person who will be serving you your cannabis and they will be a little bit more highly trained. They'll be able to offer you really specific um, recommendations based on what you want to feel and, and what your level of experience and tolerance is. And that's by design, actually. It's part of the regulations that they've had to go through. Um, you need separate staff for both areas of the restaurant. This is going to be done in West Hollywood, California. And even the West Hollywood City Council has been very 
involved in all this and kind of suggesting and, and approving how to work with the regulations. Uh, basically, as you mentioned, you know, there's going to be a separate waiter, separate bills even for food and for cannabis. And that's part of it. You're basically housing two businesses under one roof. Exactly. Yeah. And the reason for that is that there is this big discrepancy between the state law and the West Hollywood local laws. And so um, West Hollywood created, they, they passed this ordinance and they essentially created this type of license where people would be able to serve cannabis and food together and eventually infuse the food. But that's actually not legal at the state level yet. And there is no cannabis cafe license at the state level. And the state actually doesn't permit people to serve food and cannabis together. And so the reason they've had to come up with all these loopholes is so that they're able to operate this business and still stay within the state law. And the, re- the way that they're doing that is essentially co-locating the two businesses under one roof. And so when you go to the Lowell Cafe, you're essentially going to a dispensary because that is what the state has licensed it as. And they will have more limited rules than other dispensaries in West Hollywood. You won't actually be able to take things out of the area. You'll have to consume them on site. And when you order food, you'll essentially be ordering delivery from the place next door, which is actually under the same roof. There's another restaurant that could be on its way soon. It's called Antidote. And they have another creative loophole for actually being able to infuse the uh, marijuana, the cannabis into food. Because one of the problems is with food is that that stuff has to be prepackaged and tested before for quality assurance and whatnot. So for a kitchen to infuse fresh food right there in a kitchen, it's impossible to do. You can't have a regulator standing by 24-7 there. So tell us what the plan that Antidote would be using, what their loophole would be. Yeah, Antidote has a really clever plan. Um, what they are going to do when they open, and I think they're a little further off, they're planning for the spring of 2020, but they are planning to open a commissary kitchen that produces THC-infused sauces or dressings or oils or butters, like things, you know, chocolate for a dessert. And what you would do is, again, have those two co-located businesses under one roof, a cannabis business and the restaurant business. And from the cannabis business for Antidote, you would buy your butter or your oil or your sauce to go with your meal that you're ordering from the restaurant. And it would be prepackaged and tested already because they've made it and those things have a longer shelf life. And so it's kind of a way of infusing your food without actually infusing it on site. And by law, people have to open the package themselves. So you would order essentially a small bottle of salad dressing or a pat of butter and put it on the food yourself. What about some of the main concerns? Because in the way that cannabis affects people differently, their tolerances, dosage levels, everybody's a little different, especially when it comes to edibles. Are there concerns with this? Are there plans to tackle any of that? So the businesses are really aware of that. And I mean, it's, it's obviously in their best interest that guests don't overconsume, not just because it could get the restaurant in trouble, but also because they really want people to have a good experience and they want them to be regulars and come back often. And if someone gets too high and has like a really, really bad night, they're, they're going to be less inclined to come back. So it's in their best interest to make sure that people don't have too much. So those bud tenders, the people who are going to be helping people choose their cannabis, will kind of recommend a dose if people aren't very experienced or haven't had cannabis in a long time, they'll want you to start with a lower dose and then maybe amp it up if you aren't feeling anything. But they also know that edibles take a while to kick in. So they affect everyone differently. And I think that for people who are coming to these cafes for the first time and maybe are less experienced cannabis consumers, they're going to urge you to really consume 
consume it in moderation. And then as you continue to have experiences, then you can experiment with different things. But they really don't want people to be driving home. If they are under the influence, they're going to help you get an Uber or a Lyft. They have security on site in case someone goes a little bit overboard and they have ways of kind of helping people calm down. What have they said about as far as turning tables over? Because if someone's in there getting high, they're relaxed, they might linger a lot longer. It might be harder to turn over tables. There's also this other thing of it's kind of like a, if you open a, a, a bottle of beer, or a bottle of wine in a restaurant, you can't really take the leftover with you. So if you uh, get extra flour or something like that, that all has to stay there. So that's also kind of another uh, concern, maybe something that needs to be worked on. Yeah, yeah, that's something that um, I think from the city council, they're still kind of figuring out a solution to the problem of leftovers because some of the business owners here, they're worried that if someone buys something that's a little bit more formidable, like a like a whole chocolate bar or something that's really not a single serving thing, that, you know, if they can't take their leftovers home, they're going to feel kind of cheated. Either that or they'll take the entire edible and maybe go a little bit overboard. So that's something that they're still kind of working out between the businesses and the city. But there are a lot of other ways, too, that it's really not the same. Um, You know, they have to choose their locations very carefully because they can't be located within 600 feet of a school. Um, The banking is really, really tough for cannabis businesses because traditional federally regulated banks can't really do business with them. And so a lot of this is like cash transactions or they use alternative banks. And I think because of a lot of these issues, too, a lot of these businesses think that they're not really going to make a lot of money in the first year because they expenses are so great to operate one of these things. The tables won't turn as quickly because people probably will tend to linger. And they're kind of viewing it more as an investment in the future and an investment in normalizing cannabis and kind of making these sort of experiences a regular thing that people can just make a part of their social life. Tell us uh, finally, just at at the end of this, um, a a little bit more about the chef, Andrea Drummer uh, from Lowell Mm -hmm. Farms Cannabis, Cannabis Cafe. Uh, because she's really trying to make this uh, a big thing. And she studied um, at Le Cordon Bleu. So she has a little bit of culinary chops behind her. And and this is really what's going to drive this second half of this business. Yeah, yeah. I spent some time with Andrea um, when I was reporting this story. And like, this has been her dream for a really long time. She um, is a cannabis medical patient um, that she uses cannabis to treat sciatica, um, a back injury that she got from standing on her feet in the kitchen for too long. And she said that cannabis really changed her life. And because of that, she, you know, she really believes in the mission of this. And she wants cannabis cafes to be normalized and she wants them to be legal everywhere. Um, She has run a pop-up and private chef business um, doing private cannabis dinners for people, including celebrities um, like Chelsea Handler. She was on her show and she's been on the Netflix show Cooking on High. Uh, But she's run these private dinners for a long time. So she's very, very experienced in dosing and, you know, in cooking with cannabis and all of these flavor profiles. She studied them in the same way that a sommelier would study wine. Um, And so she is very excited for, for her dream to finally become a reality. And she has been working towards opening this restaurant for many, many years. Maura Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.